0: I'm April West. And I'm Catherine Sigblad. We're both first-time moms who are passionate about following our intuition and not afraid to do things differently. To say we question everything is an understatement.
1: If you find yourself analyzing ingredient labels, searching for holistic alternatives to pharmaceuticals and routine practices, and you're curious about all things baby-wearing, bed-sharing, and postpartum, you will feel right at home here.
0: In this podcast, we fearlessly confront the pregnancy, birth, and postpartum industries, share our mom hacks, and never stop challenging the status quo. We simplify the approach to motherhood and trust in nature. We are moms off the record. Welcome to another episode of Moms Off the Record. Today's episode is our birth stories as a continuation from episode two where we talked about our birth plans. Today you'll hear how those plans unfolded, how we had to be flexible. You'll hear tips from Kat on how to have a more gentle cesarean and what to expect if you do transfer to the hospital. And from me, I will share how you can have a more empowered home birth, even as a first-time mom. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening. I would love to hear the details of, of your birth story, because you had every intention to have a home birth and a water birth, and that just wasn't the case for you. So let's hear your story.
1: Okay, yes. So I had a perfectly healthy and normal pregnancy throughout. I actually fired my first provider, which was an OB group, uh, because I was told on appointment number one that I would have an epidural. This was when I was seven weeks pregnant for the pregnancy confirmation. Well, you know me, April, I don't like being told what to do. So fired them. And after watching the business of being born with Eric, I decided to go with a birth center. And, uh, I was the one who was fired. Why? I am not exaggerating here when I say I requested to use the fresh test which is for anyone listening it's an FDA approved, holistic totally safe, delicious alternative to the disgusting glucola drink which is artificially dyed orange with chemicals and the owner of the birth center did not appreciate that I was advocating for my right to request this alternative. She fired me. The underlying reason of why I was fired, she had plans to close the birth center which she knew about. It ended up closing at the end of last year. I can only imagine she wouldn't want to deal with a client like me who knows how to advocate for themselves and ask for alternatives. Fast forward. One of the blessings in disguise of me being fired by this birth center at 16 weeks pregnant was I actually received two referrals for home birth midwives in my area. Started with them at 20 weeks pregnant. And as I said before, had a totally perfect, healthy, fine, normal pregnancy until... I want to say early third trimester, we all noticed my blood pressure was starting to spike. So for context, pre-pregnancy and early in pregnancy, my blood pressures were like 110s over low 60s. Some would say that's low, but a lot of people would say that's Actually really healthy. I don't have blood pressure. Yeah, athletic. I don't have blood pressure issues on either side of my family. I personally have never had blood pressure issues. So this came as a shock to me, especially because I was eating really healthy I will say this, and I am not one to have a victim mindset at all. I I will take personal responsibility where it's due. And you mentioned that you were really active throughout pregnancy, which I aspire to be in pregnancy too. I was not. I simply kept making excuses. I was either too nauseous, I was too tired. And I do believe that my inactivity, and I think this is important for listeners to hear, I do believe that my consistent inactivity, and this is coming from someone who used to do CrossFit regularly, led to probably some complications that could have been avoided. Right. Some stuff is in our control. Some is not. My blood pressures were getting higher and I wouldn't have known this except I knew some signs to look out for, for like preeclampsia, the swelling. I never had the uh, pain. I want to say, is it the upper right abdomen? I forgot where that pain is, but I never had that issue, but I did really feel like a tightness in my chest and I looked swollen from head to toe. And so, you know, I was concerned, especially because I wasn't days away from delivering. I had a good like three months left and I knew I needed to get this down. So it became my number one priority outside of my work life, my my life with Eric. My number one priority at all times was figuring out how to stabilize And lower my blood pressure. And I'll just rattle off a few things I I did, tips for my midwives. So I was taking magnesium. Now, there's seven kinds of magnesium out there, and they all have a different function and different side effects. One of the most popular ones you'll you'll see thrown around is that Calm magnesium powder that's sold at a lot of supermarkets. But that kind of magnesium typically prevents constipation. That was not an issue for me in pregnancy. That's not necessarily going to have an impact on blood pressure. So I was taking bio-optimizers, which has all seven kinds of magnesium. I was taking probably 350 milligrams a day. I was also swimming in the pool every single day. I didn't do that till much later though. I even downloaded the Calm app to reduce my stress levels. I tried meditation, just taking long walks in nature, right? I was focusing on mind, body, everything. I was even eating more potassium and healthy salts because another myth that a lot of people still believe is that salt is very bad. It causes hypertension, but I learned from Lily Nichols in her book, Real Food for Pregnancy, that it's It's actually the opposite case, and you need real salt. I use Redmond salt, very high quality, or pink Himalayan salt, and that can reduce your risk of hypertension. Obviously, at the end of the day, you need the right balance of electrolytes to help you with hypertension, right? You can't just have a whole gallon of salt. So anyways, I was not feeling so great towards pregnancy, sad to say. And I wish... In hindsight, I really wish I had prioritized things despite it being disgustingly hot in the spring and summer in Florida, despite me being so tired and stressed out after a long day of work, shoulda, coulda, woulda, next pregnancy, the number one thing I'm going to prioritize is movement. And yeah. I'm going to tell you something that got in the way for me. I'm not trying to make excuses, but when I felt like all I could all I could stand was these long walks, it was very hard for me to get out in nature and be away from the house for lo- for periods of time longer than ten minutes because I felt uh, my baby's pressure on my pelvis and I felt like I had to pee every five minutes. And I felt like it was almost the cascade of excuses of why I wasn't moving my body. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm telling you, like I used to be one of those people who thought like. Move your body, move your body, like in pregnancy. What's the big deal? So i'm I'm eating healthy, right? And I'm taking slow walks, but the truth is, like it it could be the difference between you having that natural birth of your dreams and and maybe mm-hmm. having a ton of interventions. Right. So that was my downfall, but hey, you live and you you learn, right? So fast forward, I was monitored. At a hospital at one point, I want to say it was 38 weeks because my blood pressure got so high, it was actually beyond the point of what midwives feel comfortable with. And for context, many home birth midwives, usually the quote cutoff for blood pressure is 140 over 90, Okay, Mm -hmm. meaning if your blood pressure is over 140 over 90, they'll usually give you a grace period of about 15 to 30 minutes where you can rest. And if you have to do this, try to rest on your left side, listen to some calming music, and then have them take it again. But there's only so much in their scope when it comes to their license and the legalities behind it. So this is something that I learned about blood pressures for anyone out there who currently has hypertension in their pregnancy or if this is something that you're concerned could happen to you down the line. Some doctors, for example, like an ER doctor, might not even flinch at a blood pressure of 145 over 115. They probably won't even administer a magnesium drip unless your blood pressure is like 200 over 100 because they're used to seeing the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. However, it's all about perspective and what the comfort level is of the practitioner. My midwives are not comfortable with 140 over 90 or anything around that. And that is reason enough to go to a hospital to be monitored. I was monitored for four hours. Ironically, my blood pressure was stable. It was nowhere near my baseline of 110s over 60. It was more like 130s over 80. I thought, okay, this is fine. I'll just be monitored. I'm still going to have this home water birth of my dreams. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. Lo and behold, Eric and I are on one of our last like fancy dinners out. And I feel that shortness of breath, that tightness in my chest. Everything Uh. feels uncomfortable. It's literally hard to breathe. And I just want to say, I am well aware from all my research and listening to some of my favorite podcasts that high blood pressure in a silo, like alone, is not a medical indication for an induction, okay? But high blood pressure coupled with other symptoms can be for sure. So I started to scare myself, right? Because I'm like, <laughs> it's hard to literally breathe.
0: Yeah, a um, normal.
1: This isn't normal. This isn't right. Basically, at 38 and a half weeks, my midwife and her assistant came over to the house for a prenatal appointment, and we were sitting outside. We were just doing the normal uh, vital checks. They said, so we want to talk to you about what prenatal care is going to look like from here on out. I was like, okay. They said, we are still fully going to support you if you want to continue with your home water birth. And we know how important this is to you. However, we are going to continue taking your blood pressure, even during labor. And we don't mess around with that stuff, right? Like we're not, I'm not going to mess around with my license. I like that she was upfront, right? At least be honest about it. Right. And so she said, so it could look like one of two things. It could look like we give this a shot and maybe your blood pressure stabilizes. Let's hope that's the case and it stays beneath 140 over 90. That could happen. However, if we get two readings in a row and it's over 140 over 90, then it is going to be a hospital transport. Or the alternative is might not like this and we respect that too. It's up to you. We can schedule an induction I have a holistic midwife who works at a hospital. She is an hour away, but she takes a lot of home birth transports and she's very respectful of birth wishes and she's very open minded and there's no weird hospital policies there. We could schedule an induction. So my, the very first thing, the very first thing I thought of was, Oh my God, the arrive trial. For those of you who don't know, it's a complex situation, but simply put, it's, it's a trial that has a lot of flaws in it. But it states that if you agree to an elective induction between 39 and 40 weeks, the risk of cesarean actually goes down. It's a flawed trial. The Down to Birth podcast actually talks about it in more depth, but I knew that it was flawed. My biggest fear was having a cesarean. I absolutely did not want surgery. So I told that to my midwife. I said, yeah, but if I'm induced and the baby's not ready, then I'm probably just going to have a C-section, right? And she said, well, actually, if you're induced between 39 and 40 weeks, that risk can go down and you can Mm. still have a vaginal birth. So I had all these thoughts and concerns, and just like doubt and disappointment and guilt mm. going through my head, and like it, it was really a mourning period in that mm. very moment because I just knew like this isn't happening anymore. This this yeah. home water birth that I prepared for for seven months. I agreed to the induction because at that point there was some. There's two things that were going through my head, and this is coming from someone who's very anti-induction, by the way. I thought to myself. Well, what if my blood pressure goes beyond the crazy one forty-five over one fifteen? They they said, which is true. They said your blood pressure is probably not going to go down at this point. It typically goes up even higher in labor, and that is a fact.
0: Yes, of um, course it
1: does. Yeah, exactly. Imagine, you know, it's a marathon, right? It's a stressful and yeah,
0: it's a stressful situation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I thought of that factor. And I also thought of, well, let's just say I'm already in the tub, right? And maybe I'm in late labor. And then all of a sudden I have to get out of the tub, dry my body. We have to drive an hour to have an induction. That almost seems worse, like mentally more traumatic. And I Mm -hmm. actually was like, I think I'd be so resentful if I had to do that, that I'd rather just not do it and start to mentally prepare for an induction and what that Mm -hmm. means. Keeping in mind that from that point, all the way going back to seven months prior, Eric and I were studying, like you and Hunter, we were studying on how to have a physiologic birth totally unmedicated. Right. I felt like I had to give myself a crash course in interventions, inductions. The the first people I reached out to were Kathy Kilbrew, my childbirth educator in Los Angeles. And I said, I need your help. This is someone who had four home births, by the way, unmedicated. But I, I need your help. I need to know in order of like least medical to most medical, what are my options here? What should I do? I also reached out to Dr. Stu Fishbein. We spoke back and forth about four times on the matter. I kept him posted afterwards. So got a, got a lot of interesting insight from them. I also consulted with Fierce Lizzie. She's on Instagram. She's really fun and cool. She, ta- she has a whole academy about how to have an unmedicated hospital birth. So Awesome. Yes. So, okay, fast forward to 39 weeks and four days. That was the day of my scheduled induction. I just want to say this. <laughs> I was so naive about how long it would take once you're induced to have the baby. I knew it wasn't going to happen in a few hours. I knew I was. it was probably going to take a day, but I did not anticipate it could take at least three days. The mm-hmm. reason is I heard... I heard of stories where moms were like, oh, I was induced, or they just gave me this, and then what do you know? All of a sudden, I'm in labor. And I wasn't hearing enough of the stories of like, well, I was induced, and then like nothing happened for days. Right. by, Mm -hmm. By the way, they don't tell you that when you are administered in the hospital either. They really don't tell you what to expect. I'm sure there's nurses out there who do inform their patients, but I was never informed of what to expect. So you better believe I was shocked when you know, two days go by and I'm like, where's my baby? Like I was starting to really freak
0: out. Mm, mm -hmm. What did they induce you? How did they
1: induce you? Great question. So I really wanted, after consulting with the aforementioned sources, I really wanted to do an induction that didn't involve medicine. So I thought like, oh, I'll do a Foley catheter or a Foley, Foley bulb first, just to get things going. The problem is you actually can't, do those, you're not eligible to do those if you're not even like at least a centimeter dilated. I went in so closed off, I was barely half a centimeter dilated at 39 mm. and four. So mm-hmm. guess what? I didn't have the option to do that. I had to jump straight to one of the pharmaceutical options. So I chose Mesa, which is short for mesoprostol,
0: which is also known as
1: Cytotech. I chose Which is this.
0: also in Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, that book. Yes.
1: Yes, and and by the way, this is you know this was a lot to wrap my head around because if you know me in my personal life, you know I don't even take Tylenol to bring a fever down. So to go from that mentality to I am now forced to choose between these medical interventions, which have their own list of side effects, was not fun. So I did four rounds of Miso, and it was on, I want to say, the third. You have to do multiple rounds once you start like to get things going. Obviously, you can choose to leave the hospital, but what good is that going to do me at that point, right? Mm-hmm. So by, I want to say, the third or fourth round, my water broke, which was a crazy experience. Um, It just felt like I peed the bed times 10, and then I really felt intense. Intense, intense pressure up against my cervix. It was like a bowling ball just hanging down Literally. there. Was like, oh, yes. <laughs> no seriously. I was, and yeah. Again, it's like I think back all the things that like you're never really prepared for that people just don't talk about in detail. Right. All those little things. So, again, it's just the classic case of the cascade of interventions. All the things I was trying to avoid that I did research to avoid that I saw happening to me firsthand. And I needed to reclaim some of my control and autonomy back. So the really cool thing is because I was at this small community hospital an hour away, I liked that it was it didn't seem like a big corporation, right? And they actually were really go with the flow with my birth wishes. My midwives played the role of my doula since you know they're not employees of that hospital, even though they are medical professionals, they were able to say things to my main L and D nurse, such as, hey, you know what? We're actually midwives, but we are acting as her doula in person today. So, um, you know, could we actually do intermittent fetal monitoring instead of continuous fetal monitoring? We will observe and make sure everything's okay with the baby if that's all right with you. That was cool. How they were all able to work in sync together. There's no confrontations. So remember how we talked about our disdain for cervical checks, well, one of the things I literally learned almost you could say on the car on en route to the hospital, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to decline all these cervical checks. Well, guess what? When you have a medical induction, you don't get to incli- uh, decline mm-hmm. them because they have to know your starting point before they just give you medication. If you come in and you're at an eight, which you would probably already know, but let's just say you're at an eight. And now they're giving you a really strong dose of medication that could really wreck things for you. So I was getting checked every time they had to give me a new dose of mesoprostol. I had to get a check. It was very, very uncomfortable. Highly do not recommend. Mm-hmm. So I opted to go medication-free. I had no epidural for 16 hours. Felt like the worst period cramps of my life, times 100. A tip I learned from my childbirth educator was doing horse lips um, mm-hmm. during a contraction. So, as if you can imagine that. And sounding. I think it's so interesting. Like primal birth is, mm, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like an almond Whoa, yoga.
0: reverberant.
1: Yeah, reverberant. Yes. Yeah. The sounding helped so much. It was so therapeutic. But you often don't hear about that or see that in the hospital setting. I think Mm -hmm. women are maybe too shy or they're not taught that or they're discouraged from being loud. So sounding helped. And other
0: visualization techniques too. So my doulas suggested find a window in the room and trace the window with your eyes throughout the contraction so that way, you're focusing on something else other than the intensity. So yeah, other visualization techniques too, in addition to the sounding.
1: Yes. And then we were taught this, uh the golden bow exercise, and I don't even really remember it that much, but it's one of those meditative exercises. You imagine you're on this golden bow and your partner's like walking you through the imagery, anything to distract. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Again, I mean, I just keep thinking back to how naive and in the dark I was about how inductions really work. All I knew, right, because it was physiologic focus, my education, all I knew was that they're bad. I don't want them. I'm (laughs) going to say no. And that as long as I say no to all these things, I'll be in the clear. But the sucky thing is, like, sometimes it does behoove you. And I really, I, I hate saying this. Because I still do wholeheartedly believe in physiologic birth, and I am planning a V back and maybe even an H back for baby two. Mm-hmm. But it would have behooved me to understand medical inductions more, even though I didn't want them, just so mm-hmm. I wasn't scrambling at the last minute. So we're now on day three. I was in labor for 72 hours. My water had been broken for 36 hours. One of the first things I wanted to know was, okay, doctor so-and-so, so so I'm guessing I'm on the clock now, right? Since my water's been broken, are you going to give me a time limit of, you know, 12 hours or 24 hours before I have to be in labor, otherwise C-section? And Mm -hmm. I actually was so pleasantly surprised with her response, April. She said, actually, no. She said, "Um, I personally, as a doctor, don't care about how many hours have passed. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for signs of infection in mom and fetal distress in baby. Which is so freaking cool because my midwives are right. Even though this is an OB, right? And she's still going to have an OB mentality with some things. Thank you for thinking outside of the box. Thank you for giving patients options.
0: Yeah. And understanding ultimately what your preferences were, she knew that that would stress you out even further, which would be counterproductive to your labor.
1: Yes, and it's not evidence-based to just group all moms in who have their water broken into twelve to twenty-four hour increments. The things you want to look out for are: is there, you know, color in? Is there a discoloration in the water? Right? Like, is there meconium? Does mom have a fever? Does baby have a lot of D cells? Is there fetal distress? Right? And I I will say this: I, I think it's it's such a blessing. It's such a good sign of things to come in a shitty birth experience, is that despite all the cervical checks, despite all the medication that I got that I never wanted in the first place, Julian was fine the whole time. There was no D-cells. I was actually expecting them to be like, oh, like we see this, you know, on the the heart monitor, like, ooh, we're kind of concerned with baby. I was expecting them to try to find something. They never did. I was like, thank goodness.
0: Mm -hmm. It's a miracle. And for our listeners, You've used the term D-cells quite a bit. So I just wanted to define. Ah. that's a deceleration in the heart rate of your baby. So that's thank something you. that they're monitoring for. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, thank you. And by the way, sometimes a D-cell can be normal and okay. You just want to make sure it accelerates again and that it's not a D-cell that's too low or for too long or too consistent. That's right. important too. Mm-hmm. So now we're on our third sunset in this hospital and Eric has been doing hauls to Publix because I will not eat hospital food. Yes, I'm a little (laughs) princess like that, but uh, I can't stomach the the hospital food. So poor Eric is just coming in and out at all times, getting us, you know, public subs because that's actually the healthiest thing. The next healthiest thing near us was Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Um, But The fact that those were the healthiest options and I was in a hospital, a place where you should be getting better, it's a little sad. It says a lot about, you know, where we give birth. So we're on the third day. And at this point, I also ultimately agreed to a low, slow dose of Pitocin, which resulted in me being on Pitocin for 14 hours. And yes, that Mm. included overnight. And I'll tell you what, I actually thought, based on some of the guidance I received, I thought, oh, again, naively. Oh, some moms, all they need is a quick, quote, whiff of Pitocin to get things going. Mm-hmm. And that could actually help you maintain your desire to have a vaginal birth and not have a cesarean. And I was like, hmm, okay, I guess we'll have to give this a try. Again, because I wasn't progressing beyond five centimeters um, and you need to be at mm. a 10. Three days have passed. My water was broken for 36
0: hours. Mm. So the risks
1: are getting higher. I'm tired.
0: Oh, you're Um, exhausted. You're not tired. You're drained. Yeah.
1: I'm done. And I start to feel almost bitter. Like, why? And I hate just like mm. wallowing in, in that. Again, I don't like victim mentality, but I was like, why this way? Like, why yeah. me? I, I wanted so badly to go back in time and just like put the pieces of the puzzle together. Like, how could we have done this differently? Like, what kind mm-hmm. of hot mess did I just get myself into? The point of no return. It mm. felt so awful.
0: Horrible. So
1: I, horrible. I asked my doctor on the third night, I said, you know, what, based on the progress you've seen thus far with me, what do you think the odds of me going into labor naturally are not, not naturally, but just going into labor are within, I don't know, the next six hours, like in the middle of the night, she said, well, there it's complex, right? Because one, it could be in a few hours. It could also be in a few days. It's like, well, that's a shitty answer, but even though it's it's true, true. it's true. The other problem is she was like, well, in order to progress, and it it was true, the only way I was progressing unnaturally was with more Pitocin. But with more Pitocin, I was in pain that I simply could not manage. It was not discomfort or like, oh, that's a real nuisance. It was just... So uncomfortable. I couldn't even fathom it for another couple hours, right? Yeah. It was in that very moment that I said, and this is a part of my birth plan where actually I say, please give Eric and me five minutes to discuss any change in private, and then we will consult with you. I said, can you give us five minutes? Yes. Because I never, ever, ever want to make a fear-based decision or a decision on the spot. Um And I want to hear, yeah. And it's like, I want to hear what my spouse has to stay, say too. Even though it's my body, it's our baby. And I'm curious to hear his thoughts. So here's the thing. I said to Eric, I was borderline in tears. I was like, you know what? I said, I know this is going to sound crazy right now. And I've been preparing for almost nine months to have a physiologic birth. But I think I'm actually going to request a C-section because I feel like, I, I really am out of options now. I physically do. I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to meet our baby. I am yeah. tired of this long ass, uncomfortable labor. You're and in the
0: antithesis of the environment that you envisioned, and you're yeah. drained. Yeah. And I couldn't
1: imagine one more day of freaking like Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast and two more public subs for lunch and dinner. I was so done, April. I hated being in the hospital environment. And listen, I know some of our listeners are thinking, well, like, well, I feel safer in a hospital. Like that's for me, and. That's that is fine, but it was not for me. He, Eric, was so well-trained because, you know, I trained him and our childbirth educator was like, okay, partners, like, they might be ready to give up, but just encourage them to keep on going, right? And he was like, are you sure you want this? He's like, Uh remember, you told me to tell you that you didn't want this, right? And I said, look, I said, you've been trained very well, to say that, thank you and thank you. I said thank you genuinely for pushing back. I'm glad, but at the same time, I'm just telling you, unfortunately, this is the way it's going to have to go. So, jumping ahead, like once you say you want a C-section, they they get things going pretty quickly. I was I'm handed, ready for it. They're ready. They're willing. They're able. They're like, woohoo, surgery. <laughs> so here's the thing. I was given the epidural, which sucks, by the way. You better hope you are not in late labor when you are getting this. Might not be because there's certain policies around how dilated you have to be. You have to be so still. So still. And I think my biggest fear was like, oh my, I said to the anesthesiologist, like, what if I move even a little bit? Like I said, I'm really freaked out by this. We did some deep breaths. I think the thing that was super annoying was, and I I get like they're well-intentioned, but he was making like a ton of dad jokes in a row. Keep in mind, I'm about to have a birth. I did not want to have, and I'm trying to be still, but I also didn't want to annoy him because he's putting a huge needle on my back. So it's just like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then I was like, "Uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to hold my breath now. And then I was like, okay, thank you. Bye. So you yeah. get the needle in. You're basically like, your legs feel so, so, so heavy. It. I know some women are like, oh, I love the epidural. It's magical. And actually I was told, and this does make sense, that if you are pretty late in labor and you want to have the vaginal birth still, or if you have an epidural, it can actually help to c- continue. Um, or it can help things progress along. I get that. But I personally hated it. So then, um, you know, I'm wheeled off into the operating room and I'm just going to share a few tips for anyone who's having a C-section and a few surprises that I had when I was having a C-section as well. The first thing is if you want to still avoid narcotics post-op because you will need pain medication, obviously you're recovering from a major surgery, mm. you have to request before your surgery and have them put it in writing that you are opting in for what's called Toradol. I want to say it's spelled T-O-R-A-D-O-L. You're opting in for Toradol instead of morphine. The only reason you might get a little pushback, or I will say the only reason that this is not going to be just proactively offered to you as an option, you have to know to ask for it, is because the nurses have to top you off every few hours. And with morphine, it's one and done, right? Mm -hmm. Just know that that is in your right. It's like a really strong Motrin. So I opted in for that. The other thing you can do Despite hospital policy remember this mm. you can you can do something called vaginal seeding because oh, when yeah. a baby is coming through the canal naturally right they are collecting all of mom's healthy flora and gut bacteria, bacteria. and bacteria. Mm-hmm. yes and it's setting their gut microbiome up for success from day 1 yes. unfortunately when babies are delivered via C section they don't get that except With vaginal seating, here's all you need to do. Okay. You're going to ask your nurse before you go in for the surgery for sterile gauze and to give you a bag, like a Ziploc bag. You're going to take the sterile gauze. They can either help you if you have the epidural or you can do it yourself. You're going to insert it in your vagina and then you're going to put the sterile gauze in the bag, close it up. You're going to put it in the pocket of your hospital gown. After you have your baby, after you've done your skin to skin, your breastfeeding, Don't worry about a timetable so much you can do this within a few hours. You're going to simply pat your baby's face with the sterile gauze. Um, mm-hmm. that is a great way to mimic coming out of the canal and setting up their gut microbiome
0: yeah and I let's ha- talk about that briefly the importance of their microbiome being optimized will protect them there are so many downstream potential implications of having that messed up and that might manifest in different behavioral disorders allergies asthma we're talking all kinds of things that naturally start all in their gut so this is an incredible Incredibly important tip, and good for you for knowing that.
1: Thank you, and I want to say this: mamas out there who might be having a C-section, who are interested or curious about vaginal seeding, you might get pushback from your doctor, such as, "Well, we don't have a hospital policy around this, so sorry, we can't let you do that." I want to say that wasn't the case for me. My OB was super chill and. Her response was, um, well, actually, we don't have a hospital policy around it, but of course you can do that. It's your body and your baby. So yes, just ask the nurse for a sterile gauze and bag. So just keep that in mind that if you get any weird pushback, all you have to do is just don't even tell the nurse what you're doing. Just say, hey, do you think you could give me a Ziploc bag and, and a sterile gauze? Thank you. Like, you don't mm-hmm. have to announce it. So that is the next thing. The other things I want to share that were surprising were... How much pressure you feel on your chest when you're having a C section. I had no concept of time. I was like, is this happening over the course of 10 minutes, the operation? Have I been on this table for 30 minutes? It was around 30 minutes, but even though you think to yourself, like, okay, I'm under anesthesia, right? So I'm not going to feel anything. So here's the deal you don't feel pain per the se.
0: Vision, right?
1: Yeah, you don't feel them cutting into you, but you do feel like it's almost like there's a the weight of a car on your chest. And it weird. is scary. It's weird and it's scary. So Eric was in the room and he was right by my face and right behind me the whole time. And I kept saying to him, I said I want you to just distract me, tell me stupid funny stories, and just like just talk to me throughout. The other thing that was unexpected but apparently completely normal is when they take your placenta out because your hormone levels are in such a wild fluctuation they're going through a roller coaster your whole body shakes absolutely uncontrollably and i want to say that's I the case for gadget
0: too. too i right? did after yes After everything was done, it was just adrenaline.
1: Easy, the adrenaline. And literally, like I know you guys can't see me, but I'm shaking my hands and and my limbs wildly. That is what it looks like. It's just, again, one of those things I was not at all expecting or prepared for. The OR physician's assistant who was next to me was like, oh, yeah, that's totally common and normal. That happens when we take out your placenta. Don't worry. I was like, am I having a seizure? He's like, don't worry. You're fine. So. I want to specify too that there are things that you could do that I didn't do to make the cesarean more, quote, gentle. I know that they have options in some cases to have the see-through plastic sheath so that you can see everything that's happening. You can watch your baby come out for the first time. Personally, I'm cool without that. <laughs> it- it's just not at my comfort level. I, yeah. I don't want. You didn't to even feel want
0: to touch your cervix.
1: <laughs> exactly, I didn't want to touch my cervix. And I'm. By the way, I'm not at all grossed out by blood. I just want to say that my my dad's a surgeon. I actually had the privilege of watching him operate with the patient's consent, of course. When I was a little kid, I've never been grossed out by blood, gore, guts, all that. But I didn't want to see it on my own body for some reason. It yeah. with a surgery. Now, if it was vaginal birth, absolutely, I want to see everything. I didn't want to see my stomach cut open. Yeah. I'm going to share one really scary detail, actually. I've tried to black it out of my mind.
0: Oh, good. Um, I
1: I accidentally saw my stomach cut wide open. I'm going to tell you how it happened so you can be aware if you're in my shoes. Basically, there's a metal light. That's going to be shining on you. So the, the, you the, the stand, yes, the stand that the light's on. And I was looking up at the ceiling. I actually tried to close my eyes for most of it. But at one point I opened my eyes. I was looking up at the ceiling and I didn't, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't trying to catch my reflection, but it was right there. And it is the freakiest thing. I'm just warning you, you don't want to see your stomach cut wide open. Mm. Um, my heart sank. I just, I did not like what I saw. And by the way, this is not about me not loving and appreciating my body for all the things it can do. It's just, it's when you've been through a lot, you just don't want to see some things. It's absolutely yeah. terrifying. It's wild. It was, it was TMI even from, for me.
0: I don't think you need to worry about explaining that or apologizing for that, seriously.
1: So that was freaky, like, whoa, how random. I just caught myself in my reflection. One more thing, going back to gentle cesarean. So be mindful if you are at what's called a baby-friendly hospital, meaning they do certain things like they actually, they use the evidence, thank goodness, right? They promote skin to skin. They want you to be successful at breastfeeding. In fact, they don't want you leaving the hospital unless you get it down. I didn't even know I was at a baby-friendly hospital, but I was, thank goodness. I didn't need any more roadblocks getting in the way. So the nurse, the same nurse who was like, do you know the risks of declining these shots? Was the same nurse who was like, okay, here's your baby now after Eric cut the cord and, you know, held Julie. And she's like, okay, would you like to try skin to skin? And I'm going to be real with you. As much as I was looking forward to skin to skin in the golden hour, it's not the same when you're looking up at fluorescent lights and you are bound down on Mm. an OR table um, Mm. and you have the shakes. I didn't want my baby's first impression of his mom to be someone who is anxious and physically shaking. So I kind of knew in the back of my head, like what plan B was. And I just, I firmly said, not right now. I need time to decompress like an hour. Or so have him do skin to skin with Eric. So that's exactly what happened. Eric Good. did skin to skin. Yes. And then I'm basically wheeled back after they do their thing, stitch me up. I want to say something else. Most doctors will have the, the wherewithal to give you an incision stitch that is going to be V-back friendly. Hopefully most doctors do this. I want to say most do in in this day. So there's a few different kinds of incisions you can have. And I would just quickly research the, the names of them. I don't know all the specifics off the top of my head. I know that I have the kind of incision that is very back friendly. It is also called a bikini incision. It just looks like a horizontal line. Now, this is the most common incision type. However, if you are having a true emergency C section that is unplanned, let's say you have a placental abruption, or let's say they just need to get the baby out for any reason, in like, like right now, there's a good chance you might have a vertical incision, which is pretty rare these days. And that is. You can still have a VBAC, but the risk of uterine rupture is way, way, way higher. Way higher. Okay,
0: Good to know. Good to know.
1: Just other things good to know. Okay. So wrapping up here, the birth story. Actually, do you have any questions?
0: I mean, I'm just, I literally had to decompress from that. Because I'm just trying to imagine where you are mentally and emotionally off of little sleep, off of so much pain, so much discomfort. And just, I don't know, I'm in awe of you right now because you had to maintain this logical brain. And I don't know that I would have done that. I would have think, I think I would have crumbled under defeat, to be honest. Kudos to you. So after the incision... You're wheeled back to your room. Then are you doing skin to skin and getting that first nursing session?
1: Yes. So then it's kind of like back to normal, so to say. And there's a lot of... I knew I was kind of sad because I knew that my breastfeeding journey was going to be that much harder because I'm medicated. I had a C-section. There's a lot of pain. I'm pretty immobile, That said, I am really happy that I specifically took Trisha Ludwig, who's an IBCLC. I took her breastfeeding workshop. She's the co-host of Down to Birth. I took in my third trimester. So I knew exactly what I needed to do to set myself up for success for breastfeeding. And not once did I accept the nipple shield that they tried to push on me in the hospital. And again, I know that the nurses were well-intentioned. I know that they get scared if they see, oh, the baby's taking a little longer to latch. but. I never took the nipple shield. He never has had any formula. And that is by design. That is what I wanted. And he's almost six months old, still exclusively breastfed. So I just want to say too, I was under the impression that like oh, you know, it's going to be almost impossible to get breastfeeding down and you're going to have to have all these breastfeeding interventions. I'm going to admit there was a lot of roadblocks getting in the way of making breastfeeding easy. And I don't know how I would have done it without the constant support of Eric and my mom and Ellen Dean, I was you know, pressing that call button saying, hey, can you f- get Julian for me, who's next to me in the bassinet, and put him next to me so I can feed him. There was a lot of that going on, but I didn't Good. let it stop me and I didn't give up. So at the end of the day, I did a lot of processing. There was birth story trauma I feel like way different now. There is hope. I feel way more positive and like accepting of what happened now and past all the, the mood swings and hormone fluctuations that happen in postpartum. I feel more empowered. I feel way more informed. And I will oh, tell you, yeah. April this has inspired me so much to now my new favorite topic to research is VBACs. How to find the best VBAC provider, um, VBAC facts versus myths. Maybe that's a future episode we could do uh, with someone on the podcast, but you can have an HBAC for anyone listening. HBAC stands for home birth after cesarean. You can also have a VBAC vaginal birth after cesarean. So don't let anyone stop you. What I learned is the risk of uterine rupture, which is already so low is about the same as having a repeat cesarean. So Mm -hmm. that is my biggest takeaway. I'm more motivated now. And when things change, you still have options, like I did with my C-section. Um, and guess what? You know, two things can be true at the same time. I am so grateful and happy. And obviously, not every mom is happy when her baby is healthy
0: and alive, yeah. right? Like that's the
1: bare minimum. But you,
0: you get a prize so, at the end, no matter how you deliver your baby. Yes, a <laughs> <your> baby.
1: <laughs> yes, and and I want to say a few things too because so often we hear from very genuinely well-meaning people like oh, at least the baby's healthy or like, oh, you know, thank goodness you did this or that. And it's the last thing a mom wants to hear who had an undesired C-section. Of course, we are thankful. Our baby is in our hands, healthy and happy. We know that. We don't want anything bad to happen to our baby. But we are you are allowed to mourn the birth experience you didn't get to have. And you're allowed to be grateful and happy that you have your healthy baby. So there can be two things that are true at the same time. Um, and for any moms out there dealing with this right now in postpartum, it does get better. I think for me, around the four-month mark is where I've started to feel more normalized and accepting of it.
0: Mm, Thank you for sharing that. Definitely a good testimony for our listeners. We're going to have all kinds of listeners, I'm sure. So thank you for sharing that and kudos to you for being so informed and so strong and most importantly, healthy.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. And now I am dying to hear your birth story, which was on the opposite end of the spectrum, the home water birth. Um, Yes. I want to hear everything.
0: Okay, yes. So my birth story, I did end up having the physiologic home birth that I envisioned, but of course it wasn't without its Challenges similarly to you. I also experienced the high blood pressure towards the end of my pregnancy. I had been working out, eating really healthy, taking all my supplements, uh, just like you. I did burn boot camp all the way up through 38 weeks pregnant. I was taking the desiccated beef liver pills, the reacted magnesium. I was also taking a blood vitality supplement. I was taking electrolyte packets. I even used chlorophyll just to try and fully optimize the underlying issues that might present as high blood pressure. And despite all of that, <laughs> I still had really high blood pressure towards the end of the pregnancy. So I also tried float therapy which is a sensory deprivation float tank. It has so much salt in the water that you float on top. So I tried that one time and meditated on the idea of having a home birth. I kept reciting these mantras in my mind, like you are made to birth your baby. You're going to have a happy, healthy birth. You are going to meet your baby very soon. You're going to have a beautiful birth. I was just trying to really manifest that as well and visualize that. So I also was getting prenatal massages weekly towards the end, which was, oh my God, such a blessing. Magical hands from my massage therapist. So at about 38 weeks, I went in for my appointment with the midwives and had high blood pressure again. So this time it was like high 130s over high 80s. So really teetering on the line of preeclampsia, but none of the other symptoms of preeclampsia existed. So it was kind of throwing everybody for a loop. Then we kind of thought, well, maybe I'm just starting to get anxious about having high blood pressure readings. So they would take it at the beginning of the appointment and at the end of the appointment, and it was still pretty high. But when I would be at home and take my own readings, they were normal. So it was just kind of perplexing everyone. So after that thirty-eight week appointment, they my midwives called my backup OB to let her know like this is these readings are consistently high now. So that evening, I get a voicemail from my backup OB, and she's like, "April, what's going on? I just got up the phone with Amanda and Debbie, and they're telling me that you're having these high blood pressure readings. Are you okay? Like I really need to see you asap. Like you need to schedule your appointment for tomorrow. We need to." run some blood tests. I'd like to get an ultrasound to make sure Eden's okay and just have your hospital bag packed just in case. And that really freaked me out. That was probably when I started to reel out of control a little bit emotionally. So it's like 930 at night and I'm begrudgingly like packing my hospital bag, which was really hard. I couldn't even focus on like what I really needed because I was just so frustrated at that voicemail. And so I'm slamming things in the bag and crying out to Hunter like, oh my God, I can't believe we're going to have to do this after all that experience with the midwives. And after everything we've planned, I'm going to end up having all of the cascades of interventions and I'm going to have the worst birth ever. And he was like, April, why don't you go ahead and get a second opinion? If this is how you're feeling, like we have doulas, we have midwives, why don't you call your support team? So I called my um, midwife, Amanda, and I was like, listen, I just got this voicemail from my OB and she told me to pack the hospital bag. She told me that we're going to have to run these tests and the ultrasound. And she's like, April, all we did was inform her of your record. Remember that you're in control, that you get to decide if you want to do an ultrasound, if you want to do a blood test, that's your decision. She just wants to make sure everything's okay why don't you, you know, draw a bath and and relax. And just remember that you can advocate for yourself throughout even the late stage of pregnancy, which was just a really great reminder for me. So I end up getting an appointment the next day, like the backup OB had suggested. And we did run the blood test just to make sure everything was going okay there, but I declined the ultrasound and I negotiated with her. <laughs> I was like, okay. I don't think that there's there's no evidence pointing that Eden is at risk. So I will decline the ultrasound. And then if I'm still pregnant by our 40-week appointment, we can get the ultrasound done then.
1: The saleswoman in you coming out with those negotiation
0: <laughs> tactics. Yeah. And it felt really good just in that moment to remember that this is my birth, this is my pregnancy. And she was fine with that. The blood test. Didn't really reveal anything abnormal, so we were okay. So fast forward to about, oh, this must have been the second. So three days before Eden was born, I lose my mucus plug. And this for listeners or first-time moms, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is just a, a bunch of kind of slimy, snotty discharge. There's usually some blood Present in it as well. Sometimes it's called the bloody show. This is a really good early indication of uh, labor because everything that has kind of been sealed up for your uh, in your cervix is now released. So now this will probably start the effacement and the dilation process. But I didn't know all of that. All I knew was I lost this mucus plug on the second, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm going to have a baby!" Well, it I didn't. <laughs> On the 4th, which was Eden's due date, we have our 40-week check-in with the OB. And I had agreed to do the ultrasound. We ran another blood test, just again, to make sure that there, all of that looked normal. So when you're getting an ultrasound, you get a BPP exam.
1: And that stands for biophysical profile.
0: Right, which looks at a whole host of different things within your baby. It looks at your amniotic fluid levels and the health of that. And Eden scored a perfect 10. I was really kind of proud of myself and kind of tooting myself up a little bit because here I am, like my backup Bobby was really trying to get me all worked up and nervous. Not that that was her intention, but that's how it affected me. And worrying about Eden being at risk because with high blood pressure, for a reminder um your blood vessels are more constricted so maybe oxygen or blood isn't flowing through to your baby like it should so there might be a risk of low amniotic fluids or unhealthy fluids so it was a, it was a good test to run and she scored a 10 so we were feeling really good so we go back to her little room and she's like okay so everything looks good your blood test looks pretty normal blood pressure didn't read way too high at that time so everything was was looking good so she's like what about doing a cervical exam and at this point i was 40 weeks she was due today Why not? Oh, also the um, ultrasound tech measured her at an estimated 10 pounds. Now for our first time moms out there who are listening, or just a general reminder, estimated birth weight is unpredictable. So while they thought she would measure at 10 pounds, it could be two pounds in either direction. So when they told me she was measuring at 10 pounds, I was like, oh my God, please let her be. On the low side of that. So she, my backup OB asked for a cervical exam. And at this point, I was like, fine, let's, let's see where we're at. Right. And lo and behold, I was measuring at four centimeters dilated. So that was also something that was so surprising to me. I had no idea. And she's in there doing the exam, which is also very uncomfortable, by the way. She said, what would you like to do a membrane sweep? We can really get this party started. I was like, well, frankly, seems like Eden has started the party herself because I'm four centimeters dilated. So I was just trying really hard to be patient, not tie myself to that expected due date. The advice I had gotten from my childbirth education class and the doulas was when you think about an estimated due date, think about an estimated due month instead because you're arbitrary estimated due date can also be two weeks plus or minus. So really not getting caught up on the specific date because then the the mental gymnastics really starts there as well. So I just was patient and I was like, no, thank you. So we're driving home from that appointment. Um, Also let it be known that ahead of that appointment, Hunter and I went to lunch and we went to a Thai place and got really spicy pad thai. (laughs) So I don't know if that was also something, you know, another variable in the mix of things. But anyway, on the way home from the appointment, I start to feel menstrual cramps. I'm like, Hunter, this is weird, but I feel I'm feeling like period cramps. And he's like, hmm, that's weird. Do you think it's from the cervical exam? I was like, yeah, probably. Let me text Lauren, my next door neighbor, who again, she was two weeks behind me and she was getting routine cervical exams through her care. So I was like, hey girl, just had my first cervical exam. Is it normal to feel super crampy afterwards? And she's like, yeah, I I have felt crampy after mine. So I would say that's Pretty normal. So I didn't think anything of it. After we leave the appointment, I'm feeling these cramps, we end up heading to the gym. So again, at this point in my pregnancy, I'm just walking on the incline treadmill at like a three and a half or a four, just to keep the heart rate elevated for 45 minutes. Hunter finishes up. We also then go to Home Depot to shop for Halloween decorations. I'm still intermittent, like feeling these weird cramps and just trying not to think about it too much. And then we go to Walmart and we're shopping for some Halloween candy. And so I message my doulas and I'm like, hey, I had this cervical exam like five hours ago. I'm still feeling a little crampy. What is this? Is this normal? Is this it? And they're like, well, just ignore it till you can't. Very exciting, but it could be, it could not be. So just go home, get a nice meal, get a good night's sleep, and then let us know if anything changes in the morning. So the advice that you'll always get, or you'll often get, I should say, is if labor starts and contractions start, you pretend like it's not happening. So ignore it until it cannot be ignored anymore. So that was the advice in my head. All night, I was feeling these really, I would just describe them as intense period gramps, nothing more. Some of them would be so bad that it would wake me up, but I'd be able to fall back asleep, so I stayed in bed. And then about 4.45 in the morning, they're kind of consistently coming in around 10 minutes. And I just know this from glancing at the clock, not that I'm timing them, but once they get to this intensity and that consistency of 10 minutes, I no longer could sleep through it. So I lean over to Hunter and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go draw a bath because I think I'm having contractions, but I don't want you to be alarmed. He's like, okay, oh my God, what do you want me to do? And I was like, just stay in bed, get some more sleep because I'm going to need you to be at your best when things really start to pick up. So thankfully the night before he had hung like my uh, fairy lights in the bathroom. And so I... Turn those on. I open the big picture window over the bathtub. I set my worship music. I have my little affirmation cards too, these birthing affirmations. I wrote, breathe, relax, open. I wrote, your body was designed to birth your baby. You're going to meet your baby really soon, which is a nice little pregnancy activity just so you can kind of draw on your previous wisdom (laughs) and be reminded of all of these things in the moment where things are getting really exciting. So I set those out. I set some candles on, just really setting the atmosphere that I envisioned having my baby in. The way I would describe these contractions are more intense period cramps, but they're also super manageable because they grow in intensity and then wane in intensity, very much like a a wave. And I'm literally just visualizing as if I'm floating over waves in the Pacific Ocean. So as they come in, I'm doing a breathing exercise. As they peak, I'm visualizing that. And on the exhale, they start to wane. So I do that listening to my worship music for probably three hours, and then I finally get to a place where I'm ready to get out. And they're going from these 10-minute contractions to four, five minutes apart. So a general rule of thumb is the four one one rule. So when your contractions are four minutes apart, lasting for a minute, and that's been going on for at least an hour that's generally an indication of okay labor's really starting and call your support team so i call my doula and i'm like hey rachel um things are starting but listen i feel great i feel fine i'm totally managing the pain well like i just feel really proud of myself i'm doing my visualizations and all this and she's like, well, that's great. Um, t- tell me more. And she's trying to keep me on the phone a little bit longer so she can hear what it's like as I'm going through it. And then uh, she's like, can I talk to Hunter and have Rachel on speakerphone? And Hunter's like, yeah, hey, she's, she's been doing fine, like managing it super well. And then I hit, one hits me really intensely, and I just groan through it. And that was the first time I was starting to really feel like, ooh, these are, these are more intense. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to come over because <laughs> she knows what to listen out for. And I'll just be there in the background. And if you need me, I'll be there. And if you don't, that's fine too. I just want to be available to you. So by the time she gets over, I'm so grateful to see her because at this point, they're intense, um, still manageable for sure. But I am getting to that anxious excitement place. She comes over. We start doing some labor exercise and doing lunges on the stairs. Um, I'm bouncing on the ball. I am leaning over the bed and just kind of swaying, leaning over Hunter's shoulders, swaying. These kind of movements are encouraged to get the pelvis to shift side to side to really help your baby descend. Granted, they are uncomfortable. So lunging during a contraction that's pretty powerful hurts, (laughs) but... That pain does also equal progress. So we do that for a little while. Then we inform the midwives, like, hey, we're working through these contractions, but things are picking up. So by the time my midwives come, we're probably, it's probably lunchtime and they do a quick assessment. And I'm already at six centimeters. And I'm like, oh my God, this is cool. So I continue to do the lunging and the steps and the side lunge exercises, the bouncy ball. Until it becomes too intense and I'm ready to like, I need some comfort. So I get back into the bathtub and then my doula encourages low lunges throughout contractions in the tub and those hurt. (laughs) So at this point, things are really tough. But bless her heart, she was doing the counter pressure, the double hip squeeze. She was running warm water down my back. She was getting me a cold cloth for my forehead, just words of encouragement. I just felt so loved and supported in that moment too. And of course Hunter is um, just encouraging as well and providing support. He made me a protein shake, getting me water, getting me electric light packets. So we're moving through these contractions. And then I get to a place where it's like, oh I feel the urge to push. And so they're like, okay, let's let's try it. And I start to try and push, but I guess because I was a first-time mom, I didn't really know what to do, and I was going back to those visions in my head of what you see on movies where you yell, and that primal instinct to yell is true, but what I found was I was doing a really inefficient way of pushing. It was a very unproductive because during those contractions when you're supposed to be pushing down, I was letting all the energy come through my throat instead of sending that energy down to my vagina. So I would kind of go like through the contraction and it wasn't productive because I wasn't pushing and bearing down. So when you're a first time mom giving birth and you're trying to push, Trust your instinct um, and lean into that primal brain and push like you're pulling in your abdomen. So pulling your navel to your spine and bearing down like you would if you were going poop or trying to pee really hard. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. But keep that energy from going out of your throat and send it down. But because I was doing those uh, low lunges in the tub, I was starting to feel incredibly weak and defeated. And unfortunately, Eden's heart rate was dropping. So her D-cells were about in the 90s. I, they didn't tell me they were in the 90s. They just used the phrase, Eden is tired, Eden is stressed. But after Eden was born, they told me how low it got. I'm glad they didn't tell me in the moment because I think that would have made me really freak out. So they were like, April, you're tired. You've been at this for a while. This might be an appropriate time for us to consider to go to the hospital, get you some fluids, get you some rest. And I just broke down. I was just like, no, please. Like, that is not what I want. I don't want to do it. I I, I don't know why I can't push. I really don't want to go to the hospital. Like, can I please try again? And they were like, okay, you can try Eden needs some rest. So, for these next few contractions, we don't want you to push. We just want you to try and relax. And granted, I'm still in the tub, I'm laying on my side at this point. And resisting the urge to push during those pushing contractions is hard work. (laughs) It just, I got to a place where I was almost shaking trying to resist the urge. So I did that for what felt like an eternity. It was probably 10 or 15 minutes. But then I told them like I I literally can't not push. Like it hurts so bad. I need to push. So they're like, "Okay. They check her heart rate. It's back up. So we're we're okay." And they're like, "All right. Well, we need to get this baby out. So let's try something else because the water isn't working. And they knew I wanted a water birth, but at that point, like I was defeated. I was tired. It wasn't effective. So we moved to the toilet, which was really great because I had to poop (laughs) and that's totally normal. So I sat on there kind of facing the back of the toilet for a while did a couple contractions there, wasn't having it. So then they put me on the birth stool. And the birth stool is not a great place to give birth if you're long like me. So well, for was, our listeners, how tall are you? I'm a 5'10 5'11". And, and when I'm not pregnant, I'm around 155 pounds. So, so lean and long. Lean and long. And the birthing stool is very uncomfortable. Like my legs were so tired. My quads and my hamstrings were burning, but that is where I had the most productive pushing. But this is where they identified that I had the anterior cervical lip. So a cervical lip is when you're 10 centimeters dilated, but the neck of your cervix is just kind of hanging out a little bit. So my midwife, Debbie, manually held that back using her thumb while I was pushing during those contractions. And then my water broke. So I'm like, okay, cool. Things are really getting going. But man, that stool just took everything out of me. So I'm on there for, I don't know how long, pushing there. And Debbie would say, um... That one was totally unproductive. We didn't get any movement there, and that's when I started to crash again mentally. Because I'm like, great, I'm 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 not pushing. I don't know how to do it. I'm just I'm failing at pushing. I don't know how to do it. And they were like, okay, well, we can think about going to the hospital. So they had offered twice for me to go to the hospital, and I was just like, no. So I was like, listen, I I'm not doing well with the comments of being unproductive. When I do it right, encourage me there. That way I can start to kind of calibrate towards what is a productive push and what isn't.
1: So I love that. Okay. I have a real quick question because I have Mm -hmm. no idea what a cervical lip even feels like. So when you say, because we talk about too, like how pushing doesn't need to be guided or directed, generally speaking. And, you know, it's like taking a poop, right? But when you say you weren't like really pushing right, like how how, how did it feel when you were pushing and not doing it the quote, like right way? And then how did it feel when you were doing it the right way?
0: Right. Good distinction. So unproductive pushing is I'm flowing with my contraction, but I'm sending all of my energy out of my throat. Uh, Like that versus sending that energy down, almost like you're pooping or bearing down, doing a like a Kegel press, your whole pelvic floor is engaged to push your baby out. And in between contractions, you hold there versus when you take a deep breath, then sucking your baby back up. And that's what kept happening to me. So Eden would be kind of crowning, and then I would take a deep breath and relax and pull her back in. So eventually, we figured it out with the words of encouragement. And then I also reached out to my doula, Rachel... And I was like, can you please read me Isaiah 41, 13? And it was like, do not fear. I'll take you by your right hand. I will help you. And that was enough to just kind of get me back into the headspace of like, I am doing this. I'm bringing my baby earth side. Like, let's effing go. So... We moved from the stool because my legs were just totally drained. I mean, when you're pushing, your adrenaline is running. You're using all of the muscles in your body to try and bring your baby down. So ironically, the position that I end up delivering her in is the reclined position on the bed, knees spread apart. I have Hunter behind me, so he's leaning up against the headboard. I'm nestled in between his legs, reclined, and then... My midwife, Amanda, was there to catch the baby. So the strength that I had to pull from Hunter in this moment during these contractions, I mean, I'm physically grabbing his hands and just... Using every bit of energy he has. He's encouraging me. He's saying, you know, all the beautiful things. And finally, we get to a place where we can see baby's head. So here's some advice I have for pushing for first time moms. When you get to that phase where, where your baby is crowning or they can see the hair, that's a tight little canal that baby's head has to come through. So in between contractions, don't let go. That was where I really messed up. So in between contractions, I would take a deep breath to try and like collect myself and it would suck it and right back up. So we were doing this thing where I would push her out and then deep breath in and pull her back in. And that was a little dysfunctional. So I had some swelling more than probably normal because of that dysfunction. Once they were encouraging me to like hold her to bear down in between contractions and breathe through my nose instead, that's where she hung out. And then finally, I could get her out. But you don't want to do that. Your body wants to take that break and pull her back in because it is painful. So push through that pain because that's where the progress is again. Once I had figured that out, we got her head almost there. And then I dig so deep. Hunter said it was the craziest noise he had ever heard. It was so primal. I don't even remember doing it. But I just screamed like from the pits of hell. Yeah. And I push her out. And the ring of fire is a real thing. During that stage, your tissues are thinning and... So I literally said, it burns, it burns, and they're like, keep going, that's good. So anyway, her head comes out, and then I garner up enough strength to push her shoulders out. And Hunter said, when her shoulders came out, it was like, When you're on a water slide and you hit the water at the bottom, just gushing out, I like Nickelodeon slimed my midwife all over her shirt, was just fluid and all kinds of gross stuff. (laughs) But Eden came out and I certainly felt those adrenaline shakes. It was just uncontrollable shakes. But all of that, and this is what I want to encourage the listeners, if you think you can't do a home birth, I hate to hear that oh, I can't do it. You're so brave. I don't know how you did it. I would never be able to. Yes, you can. And I'll tell you why. Because your body is designed to carry your baby and your body is designed to birth your baby. And all of that temporary discomfort, it won't last forever. And the joy and the bliss that you have with totally free-flowing hormones between you and your baby, it is so beautiful. And immediately after, everything else fades away. Everything else falls away. It's just like that pain that you just literally minutes ago experienced is gone in an instant because you're in awe of your baby and you're excited in the endorphins, everything. You're just, it's totally possible because you forget all about that other stuff. So, they deliver Eden immediately, put her on my chest or just below it because my cord is really short. So, my cord being so short, it started to kind of pull on the placenta, that placental traction. So, I was losing a little more fluid, especially because of that dysfunctional pushing phase. So, um, my midwife, Debbie, said, You know, would you be okay if we gave you a shot of Pitocin just to help contract and ease the bleeding? So, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I don't care. My baby's here. Like, do whatever you want. <laughs> so, that little shot of Pitocin went in my leg. It does burn a little bit. I will say that. But, t- t- like, once you deliver a child, like, everything else is so inconsequential in terms of pain. So, I have Eden on my chest. We're just like in our little bliss bubble, new family of three. And just to take a moment to recognize the surroundings here. Home birth is so beautiful because you are in the comfort of your home and we were in the same bed that we conceived her in. And so it was just like this beautiful full circle moment. We had our music going. We had the oil diffuser going. We had candles lit. Like it was just a very ceremonious environment too. So then like probably 35 minutes later, my placenta comes easy to deliver. No bones. It's really awesome. <laughs> and. They put that in a bowl next to me and we just let it drain. And it takes probably like a good hour before we cut the cord and Hunter ends up cutting the cord. And I do also want to specify, this was something that I wasn't expecting, what your vulva looks like after your baby comes.
1: So I
0: I didn't know this. And so I'm just going to put it out there and sorry if you don't want to hear it TMI, but probably something we should normalize is your vulva changes too. So your vulva is the part of your vagina that you can actually see on the outside, your lips and all of that. My stuff was huge. And I made the joke to Hunter. I'm like, this thing looks like a moose snout.
1: (laughs) I remember you texted that to me too. And I thought that was such a funny analogy. Okay. So for our listeners who haven't had a baby yet, vaginally, how long does that, Moose now appearance last. Oh. And what do you just wake up one day and everything looks back to normal or is it like progressive?
0: So there's some discomfort afterwards. And so being at home, I got to shower after a few hours of the golden hour, the first nursing session. But I remember walking to the bathroom and like, it felt like I had to waddle because it felt like I still had a baby head in between my legs. That's how swollen I felt. But remarkably, after a couple of days, this thing went back to normal on the outside. Um, there's still some, we should have a separate topic about postpartum, but yeah, it's pretty remarkable that things go back to normal. So then the magic starts for the birth team. So my midwives start cleaning. They take all of the towels and the dirty sheets. So here's another pro tip that they gave. When you are expecting to deliver at home, put your good sheets on and then put some old sheets that you don't care about on top of that. So make your bed twice, essentially. So when you deliver your baby, you can quickly tear off those two sheets and then your other sheets are ready for you and you don't have to worry about making a bed. So they did that. They take the towels down, they take the sheets down, and I take my first shower. The midwives also help me with my uh, postpartum kind of diaper situation. So they teach me all of that, all the steps. They're really taking care of me. Meanwhile, my blessed doula, Rachel, is downstairs preparing a, a dinner for us, and she ended up, feeding that to me, which was so sweet. And then the bedroom just kind of looked like nothing crazy happened. And so they ended up leaving around 1030 or 11. And another beautiful element to my story that I always forget to share, but is so amazing to me is as I'm laying there, they're doing the little newborn test a couple of hours later. So measuring her head and her length, and she was born eight pounds, seven ounces at 21 inches. Amanda, she's like, by the way, did you lose your grandmother or someone maternal? And I was like, yeah, you know my my mamma was my everything. She was, you know, essentially my mom because my mom was a single mom and worked a lot. So I got along great with my mamma. She taught me everything. We lived together for a while, just her and I. Like, why do you ask? And she said, "Well, I've been sensitive since I was a young girl, and when you were laboring in the tub, I felt her presence." And she was just standing outside of the bathroom looking over you. And, oh my God, it doesn't take anything to weep in postpartum, but I just wept because it was such a beautiful reminder. And it just made me feel so loved and comforted and watched over and protected. And it's it's such an... There are no words for the experience that, that it was transcendent. I mean, it was amazing. So... Yeah, it was uh, a beautiful experience. Um, that night, we, uh, I had a nursing tank top, and I just put Eden in between my breasts in that little tank top because she was so small, and that's how we slept for the first two nights. And yeah, West party of three in our bedroom. So it was an amazing experience.
1: That is incredible. And let me just say that one of my takeaways from your story, aside from how in awe I am of you and sticking with it, even when things get hard, sticking with it, is I bet, and tell me if I'm wrong, that there's no better motivation than being told if X doesn't happen, you're going to have to go to the hospital, right? And then lo and behold, 30 minutes later, right, you met your baby.
0: Exactly. You get a prize at the end. No matter how you deliver your baby, you get your baby at the end of it. So it's it's always great to stay empowered and trust your intuition and listen to your body. And very soon you get to meet your baby. So that's a wrap for episode three. Thank you so much for listening. Catch us on the next one where we dive deep into the infant sleep realm. You're not going to want to miss this one. We have tons of facts and stats coming at you to support infant sleep.